0: You've hit play on the screen, Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. So we are gathered together to talk about ridiculous movies. In particular, movies that are ridiculous in a good way, in a fun way, as opposed to a way that would make you want to just turn the sucker off. We have a first-timer joining us. It's Pat! Say hello, Pat. Hello, Pat. (laughs) And then a returning favorite, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Am I
1: really a favorite, or are you just saying that to butter me up?
0: Uh, I've gotten feedback from some listeners, and they do enjoy your stylings. Oh, all two of them. That's good. So as we're getting into ridiculous movies, today we're going to talk about Die Hard 2, Die Harder, Roadhouse, Baywatch... I'm curious, Pat. What's your relationship like with these ridiculous movies? Do you accept them regularly in your film diet?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. I would say. Um, I mean, I guess I have an appreciation for uh, for certain films. So, yeah, I think that like the Die Hard trilogy for sure is one of my favorites. Absolutely, or the Die Hard franchise. I guess you have to call it now because there's not uh, just three movies anymore. Yeah, I would say I appreciate a good Ridiculous movie, as long as it's fun, too, like you were talking about.
0: How about you, Andrew?
1: I do love me some good Ridiculous movies. I like a movie with a solid plot and solid acting and everything, but every once in a while, it's really satisfying to see something fly off the rails, as long as it holds itself together
0: i find i can get into ridiculous movies as long as there's a give and take involved like if they're going to get ridiculous then there needs to be some entertaining reason some feedback that comes from that when it's ridiculous because the filmmakers just seem lazy or they're not paying attention or don't care then i just turn it off i can't i won't abide ridiculous just because they're bad filmmakers when do you kind of figure out something is ridiculous? Is it an acting cue or or plot? Like what, when do you smell something ridiculous is starting to happen? It's
1: usually, I guess, the story, although it can be acting. But I think with acting, that could always just be a stylistic choice for, you know, whatever, right? um like i mean when you really like take the movie anchorman it's a pretty serious story in the sense of like it's a newsman who's finding out he's really not with the times anymore because women are entering the workplace but everything around it and the characters are so ridiculous but i feel like with these movies it's the plot well no with baywatch it's not the plot it's the characters watching roadhouse for instance all this stuff is happening in the world of bars and bouncers as we talk about it later you'll Kind of think like, wait a minute, why is everything so serious in the world of bars and bouncers? (laughs) It takes things that should never go past a four all the way to like a 15. I think that's kind of my cue for ridiculous.
0: And Pat, just so we got an idea what your threshold for ridiculous is, can you uh, cite me a couple examples of ridiculous movies that were too ridiculous for you that you just held your nose and said, I don't want this?
2: Ooh, that's a good question there. Yeah, some movies are just a little too much. Yeah, like I'll go with another uh, Rock movie. I thought Rampage was a little bit too ridiculous for me. He's definitely one of my favorites, and I feel like anything he does is pretty darn good. But I thought Rampage was a little too much for me, at least. The storyline was just so ludicrous, plus the fact that they rewrote the ending of the movie because The Rock didn't like it. Hmm.
0: Oh. <laughs> I think The Rock gets by a lot on his charm. I mean, he is the most
1: electrifying man in sports entertainment. The people's champion. The great one.
0: Yeah, he might be the most famous bald guy
2: right now.
1: I'd give that to you,
0: yeah.
2: Yeah, I think he gets it. I think he's the highest paid actor right now, isn't he, I think?
0: I believe, if not this year, I think I read in the last couple years,
2: yeah. He's had quite an interesting career. You could do an entire episode about just his career and some of the movies he's taken part in over the years.
1: The Scorpion King is a great, ridiculous movie.
0: Well, let's get right into it. Let's start with Roadhouse.
1: Patrick Swayze plays a bouncer slash cooler named Dalton who goes from town to town and rough bar to rough bar to fix them up because they're just a little too rough and tumble to be a successful business. And he goes to this bar called the Double Deuce, a pretty bad place, and he whips it into shape, all while learning about the bad guy who controls the scenes from the shadows in the town that he's taking care of.
0: When was the first time you saw this movie, Andrew?
1: Maybe about 10 years ago. I knew it by reputation. and I thought, man, this movie sounds fun. I think I'll give it a watch. And I finally did. And it definitely lived up to the the reputation that it is very
2: ridiculous, but it's a good one. And Pat, did you say you hadn't seen Roadhouse? I had not seen it before this week. So yeah, I mean, I've heard of it obviously. And I heard that it was a similar movie to uh, Tom Cruise's Cocktail from the 80s or so that there was some, uh, some parallels there, but I had never seen it before. So it was definitely an experience.
0: So being a first timer, Pat, What about it strikes you as being especially ridiculous?
2: I think the two things for me that were really, really funny and ridiculous about it were, one, you've got this guy Dalton. You said, Andrew, he's a bouncer and a cooler. And he has this amazing reputation for being this guy who can go into bars across the country and fix things up. Whereas, like, I don't think I've ever known a bouncer or, like, like, this is the guy who keeps things in control or this is the guy who tames things like that. So I thought that was pretty funny that everywhere he goes, everyone's like, ooh, Dalton, this guy's for real. You don't mess with Dalton. As the events of the movie continue to escalate and things got more and more crazy. And that was interesting. That The police were never involved until the very, very end of the film. There's like attempted murder. You never once see the police. Attempted murder. Actual murder. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: Pretty hysterical. I'm a fan of 80s films. And I've enjoyed Swayze and other things. I've worked at a couple clubs, so it was interesting to have that perspective. And I can tell you that bouncers are a really important part of the team. If you have bad bouncers or not enough bouncers, you're in trouble. Andrew, what would you say tips this movie into fun territory? It's definitely ridiculous, but what makes it so watchable?
1: The action scenes? Great. It's good fight sequences. What tips it over really is just the escalation. When you first see the double deuce, when Swayze shows up just to take a look at the place, everything's being just broken. People are getting into fights left and right. There's a waitress dealing drugs out of the place. I also think one of the things that also tips it over, and I think it's kind of the unsung genius of the movie, the understated reactions of the characters. Patrick Swayze sees people bust up his car throughout the movie. He just smirks and shakes his head. Everybody has reactions like that where it's just like, oh man, you know, someone's getting beat up. And they just go about their day because that's just life at the double deuce.
2: When he bought the car, he bought four additional tires for it. At the time, I didn't realize it, but it was like he was knowing that people are going to mess with him. So he just kind of prepared for that at the beginning. And that's just ridiculous in itself who thinks like, oh, I got to get some extra tires for when my tires do get slashed.
0: The ridiculousness is balanced out by little details like that that do serve to make it feel like a lived-in world. And then later when he, uh, he's in his loft over the barn and he's with the doctor and they're talking about the place and he says that he likes that the horses are out there in the stable, so if somebody's trying to sneak up on him, the horses will let him know that they're there. If he's a legitimate bouncer and he's seasoned at this, he would think about this stuff. It would explain why he's able to survive this long without totally getting his ass kicked, because he knows all the tricks.
1: I think you're absolutely right, uh, both of you, about those little touches, because you can tell he's done this before, it does make the world more believable and somehow less ridiculous, although we know as the audience this is completely lawless and would never happen. <laughs> it is what it is. That's their world.
0: Let's get into a few more of the details in this. For this Bay Baywatch, I took a tally of certain things. This movie, I took a tally of... How many sets of naked boobs there were? I counted eight pairs of breasts. And that contrasts heavily with a movie we'll discuss later that had zero naked breasts.
1: <sighs> oh. Alright, well we know which one you liked more.
0: <laughs> but something about this, so it was scored by Michael Kamen, who also scored Die Hard 2. Oh. And, Andrew, just for you, buddy, can you think of a Bond movie he scored? No, which one did he score? License to Kill. I love that one, too. There are a couple of stingers or something in the score that reminded me of License to Kill. Like, maybe he reused parts of it. Well, if it's good,
1: it's good. He had a wheelhouse, and he stuck to it.
0: Hey, I was watching this, and I was enjoying the movie, but... A lot of parts made me wonder, is
2: Dalton a dick? I felt he was kind of cocky and arrogant. He was obviously very sure of himself, and he was very sure of what he was doing. I don't know if I'd necessarily say he was a dick. He wasn't necessarily unlikable as a character.
1: I will say that yes, he is kind of a dick, but it's nothing personal. He kind of said it when he first sat down with everyone at the Double Deuce and was laying down his law there to do a job he's trying to shape it up and shape up the staff if he's being a little brusque with you it's just that he has something to do he doesn't have time just move on your way
2: when he came in at the very beginning and he started yeah he was firing people for all of these discrepancies it was very reminiscent for me of an episode of the tv show bar rescue i don't know if you guys are oh yeah (laughs) i love that show (laughs) For all the listeners, if you ever get a chance to check out Bar Rescue with John Taffer, he's just a a guy who goes into bars that are going bankrupt and yells at people and fires people and (laughs) helps reinvent the bars. Pat, what were some of your favorite scenes or characters or aspects of this? I loved Sam Elliott as an actor and just having him kind of come in as the old school bouncer was just was really funny. I thought the villain was over the top, obviously. (laughs) but You can't have a good, ridiculous movie without a ridiculous villain who just messes with people for no other reason than he's just a jerk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How about you, Andrew? It's not that
1: funny because this guy was assaulting a woman. The first time you see the double deuce, there's a dude who's selling kisses on his woman's bosom. (laughs) (laughs) for for 20 bucks a pop and this guy goes over there to do the transaction and he's groping this woman and the guy says well uh, aren't you gonna kiss him and he says well I would if I had 20 bucks that's the kind of movie that you're in for it's so silly
0: what I think is at the base of it being ridiculous but was also something I really liked about it I think at its heart, it's definitely a Western. The lawman comes to town to bring law to this lawless place. It works really well that it's a club that has all these barroom brawls. We get to see a lot of great choreography. We do get some gunplay toward the end of the movie. There's so much machismo going on. You can tell
1: this is a movie for the boys.
0: I think they had a real uh, missed opportunity since they had those horses at the stable where Dalton was staying. He never rides a horse in the movie, does he? No. Yeah, they should have done that to really connect it with the Western themes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Frank, I had a question for you about the film since you talked about your roots of working in a club. So some of the tactics that you see Dalton employ throughout the film, how do you feel about those? Do you agree, disagree, or do you feel like they were actually logical tactics or were they part of the ridiculousness of the movie? Let's go
0: over his three rules that he tells the staff at the Double Deuce when he takes over security.
1: Um, well, I remember that the rules were whatever he says goes and I also remember the ultimate rule was If the guy starts getting violent, you be nice, and Dalton will let them know when not to be nice anymore.
0: The middle one, I believe, is take it outside. Don't start something in the club unless absolutely necessary. He seems like a dude I would have loved to have had at my club. You want to avoid conflict, if at all possible, especially in the 21st century besides cops not really being present in the movie it almost feels like lawsuits don't exist in this universe either (laughs) because there's like 20 different examples where i was thinking when it was happening that would be a lawsuit this would be a lawsuit this club would already be shut down dalton would have been sued five times over (laughs) it did give me some warm and fuzzies thinking back to clubs. And they do a a fine job in this movie of showing the chaos, the fun chaos of people hanging out, doing their thing, drinking, dancing. And then you got these little pockets of fighting, danger. If you're a patron, maybe you're close enough to know something dangerous is happening next to you and you're going to rubberneck. you're 20 feet away and you have no idea what's going on because the music's blaring and you're just not paying attention. But let me tell you folks I've been there, I've seen it I've done it. There's more danger in a club than you can realize sometimes. (laughs) Good to know I guess. Even though this is a ridiculously fun movie Pat, can you think of anything that you might change to improve it and make it a bit more palatable for folks that aren't up for total ridiculous fun?
2: The big thing I called out at the beginning was the lack of police involvement earlier in the movie, so maybe have police around a little bit more, even if they're quote-unquote inept. At least they're showing up when buildings are exploding or when people are getting murdered. They do have a line,
0: and I think it's to put a lampshade on the fact that there's no police. Don't they say that the big bad of the town has bought off the cops?
1: They do, but it's about two-thirds, if not more, into the movie.
0: Perhaps he's told the cops, just don't show up. He wants to toy with Dalton and deal with him his own way. So he doesn't even want them knocking on a door to rough anybody up. He just wants to make it his own sphere of influence. That's how I tried to uh, rationalize it. What about you, Andrew? Anything you think could make this a little less ridiculous?
1: You don't learn really about Wesley being the big bad until, I would say a little bit longer into the movie than usual before you know who the villain is. The villain at first is kind of just the patrons of the double deuce. You don't really learn about the stranglehold of the villain until much later than usual, I think.
0: One aspect that I could have done without is Dalton's character, He does Tai Chi, and he says he's got a philosophy degree. Those seem like details Patrick Swayze wanted when he took on the role. He's already the lawman. Do we have to make him like a warrior monk, too?
1: That's part of the ridiculousness of this movie, Frank. Don't take away Dalton's NYU philosophy degree.
0: (laughs) And I'm going to assume they included those details to give him more dimension, but it doesn't further the story as far as explaining how he is the way he is.
1: Absolutely not.
0: It seems so discordant with the rest of it. (laughs) They do a fabulous job of foreshadowing a bunch of stuff, like buying the extra tires because he knows he's going to get him slashed, that he doesn't use his nice car, he uses a beater his reputation they're talking in the club and and somebody mentions that they heard that he ripped somebody's throat out (laughs) and then we see him do that later in the movie (laughs) and then and then the the doctor his love interest played beautifully by kelly lynch she goes to check on the guy it's like look lady his throat got torn out i think he's dead (laughs) She's got to see it for herself. That's true. Any final thoughts on this as we move along?
2: Great recommendation, Andrew. I would say that it's a must-watch for any good bad movie night when you're going to have a group of friends over. I'll definitely have to put this one on my list. Well, thank
1: you. It's already going at a good 60 miles an hour for most of it, but it, it cranks up to 100 or more in the last like third of the film to the point where you really think, like, how could no one stop? this madman Wesley, before Patrick Swayze came to town. It's definitely worth it if you like 80s movies, you like a good, you know, pseudo-martial arts film, I say.
0: It was so balls-to-the-wall, and it's not just a throat being torn out, it's multiple acts of violence (laughs) that just (laughs) goes so over the top. (laughs) Definitely better than I thought it would be, and a worthwhile Swayze movie. Let us move on to 2017's Baywatch, Pat's Pick.
2: All right. Uh, So Baywatch is uh, starring The Rock as Mitch Buchanan with uh, Zac Efron playing the role of Matt Brody, and it's a spoof movie of the popular 1990s TV show Baywatch. The show itself was pretty ridiculous, and was actually canceled after one season and then gained worldwide fame in europe specifically and in germany and was revived and ended up running for 11 seasons of just being a completely ridiculous show so the movie is basically some of the same characters from the show recast like i said with the rock and with zach afron and now they're doing baywatch in the in the mid-2000 teens and There's a murder and they investigate the murder because even though they're lifeguards, they take the law into their own hands and they feel like they could do it better. So there's a murder, there's drug smuggling, anything that you don't associate with lifeguards, they can do it all. And it's pretty spectacular. What I love about this movie specifically is that they definitely own that fact that it's just ridiculous. They reference it throughout the film, how, you know, we're lifeguards. We do these sorts of things. I think The Rock is just fantastic. He just does a great job at owning the fact that it's a ridiculous movie from the get-go. Just <laughs> steering into the skid on that.
0: Andrew, uh, you're a first-timer seeing this, right? Yes. Give us your take on it.
1: I've never watched any of the episodes of the show, but I remember there was a scene where they were kind of listing off things that they had done before as lifeguards while Zach Efron's talking about going to the police. And then one of them said, like, that sounds like a bad episode of a TV show or something. And so I have a feeling they were listing off actual plot lines from the show. It was very tongue-in-cheek with its own references to itself. It definitely is just over the top.
0: Out of these three movies, Baywatch does a perfect job of advertising what it is and what you're in for in the first five minutes. With slow motion, this giant title card and dolphins <laughs> jumping up out of the water—that's something that always uh, troubles me with some movies. Is it can take a while to figure out what it's going to be about, and you get a half hour into it and realize, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I'm disappointed. But this movie tells you up front: Look, this is crazy. It's stupid. It's fun. If you're not along for this, now's the time to bail. <laughs> So this was the other movie where I took a tally. I took a tally of how many slow motion shots there are in this movie. Andrew, take a guess. How many shots, not scenes, but individual
2: shots do you think there are of slow-mo?
1: Oh man, I'd have to go,
0: I'll say over 40.
2: Ooh, I'm going to go last, but I'm going to go with like 13.
0: Now, I got to say it wasn't super scientific because they use slow-mo very subtly in some shots where it took me a second to realize that's what was going on but i'm gonna say give or take a couple i counted 56 instances of slow motion i'm talking shots cuts at least 56 and i haven't seen any episodes of the show either but i was talking with a coworker leading up to this episode and He said, yeah, they did a lot of slow motion, and I don't know if they used it as much in the show, percentage-wise, as they do in this movie. They really love their slow-mo.
2: I'll give you a little background on the show itself. Yeah. They definitely utilized the slow motion. It's actually been digitally remastered recently, the show has. You can find the entire series on Hulu. You can find the entire series on Amazon Prime, I believe. The big difference is that there's a lot of casual sexism in the 90s. Women are sex objects, and it's pretty horrendous in the show. And I think that's one thing the movie did really well, was they definitely downplayed that a lot more. They definitely still sexualized the women characters, but not to the extent that the show did. And the other big thing is montages. Over the 11 seasons of the show, 240 episodes, they had over 300 montages. Oh my... So, yeah, you'd have like a two or three minute montage, apparently, with music playing. Ridiculous, is a fact I read when I was reading the IMDb trivia for perspective of what the show was. And then that's where the movie picks up on that. Andrew, you said this sounds like a plot line for a bad uh, TV show. And that is absolutely true. Some of the plot lines are just ludicrous. You have lifeguards investigating murders, stopping smuggling rings jumping into underground casinos and things like that so the movie definitely does a good job at playing into that as well with the drug smuggling that's going on and with the murder of the city council member because it happened in the ocean now they have to investigate it
0: what do you think really makes it fun
2: i love the opening sequences when you know they have the lifeguards have to go through the gauntlet basically to uh to train and become new lifeguards and then matt brody do the the ridiculous ultimate ninja style obstacle course and then the the rock has the refrigerator lifting challenge with him where they're like lifting refrigerators (laughs) and he's like why you know you've got the character matt brody played by zach Efron, and he's just thinking this is ridiculous we're lifeguards why would we ever do this
0: (laughs) which that test is so one-sided and obviously favors the rock
2: (laughs) although zach Efron is pretty significantly ripped in that film So you got to give props to him as well.
0: Andrew, any moments stick out as particularly fun? As immature as it is, when the guy
1: got his wiener stuck in the slats, where like you see the close-up of his junk as they're tugging, and you can see like clear ball definition, (laughs) that did make me laugh. It did not pull any punches. And I will say like it had a pretty decent villain. Like she was more understated than the rest of the film. So it was kind of a nice contrast. Everyone played their parts well. You can tell that they went into it knowing what it would be and they definitely they did what they needed to do or I think I don't remember a lot of the character names but Alexandria Daddario was still an audience member I think in the movie where she could kind of see things being ridiculous but she was still down to investigate a murder as a lifeguard. Yeah, it just had a lot of those moments where when the movie was more self-aware. It would make me chuckle.
0: This movie is a touch over two hours long. I could have shaved a few minutes off the runtime, but whenever it got a little slow for me, what kept it fun and kept me engaged was the fact that these characters, the lifeguards, they have such a positive, can do attitude, and as outrageous as they get, and how many toes they step on to investigate what's going on on their beach you know they're coming from a good place. They just want to do a good job. They want to help people. They just uh, don't believe in boundaries. Even though this is very entertaining and ridiculous, Pat, can you point to anything that you might say could have been less ridiculous in order to make this a more mainstream film?
2: Ooh, um, The scene in the morgue, I think, is a pretty ridiculous scene. When when they're in the the morgue and trying to investigate once again this murder and yeah uh, you know, the rock says oh you've got to look for a needle mark or whatever or like that makes him lift up the ball sack or the scrotum and touch t- <laughs> touches the the dick I think so I think that they definitely made it an R rated movie lots of swearing lots of just ridiculousness with the penis in that scene specifically um, and like you said the and then then the other scene when the the guy gets his not stuck in the uh, in the slatted chair. I think if you were going to tone it down, you'd probably eliminate a, a little bit of that. Maybe try and make it a PG-13 movie if you wanted to make it, you know, less ridiculous, but they definitely just owned it.
1: I think you can still get away with kind of a lot in terms of dirty jokes in the PG-13. I don't like it when I start to feel like they were going for an R rating just to have one, and I think that was the morgue scene was that personally i didn't think that particular part was funny you can see from a mile away like okay the rock's making him do it just as a joke the funnier part of the morgue scene was the stuff dripping on his face when they're in the corpse fridges and also i did think it was kind of funny when the bad guy looked in the fridge and he saw alexander daddario just filming him he's like what the hell you know it's just (laughs) with movies like this i can see there's pg-13 and still funny potential Just because there's a lot of F-bombs doesn't make it funny.
0: Yeah, but that's a lot of humor these days, isn't it? Not
1: necessarily for the best, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Well, something ridiculous that I touched on earlier. I can't believe there are zero naked breasts in this movie, Pat. Where have you hidden all the boobs? We saw a penis, for God's sakes, in multiple shots. We saw Zach Efron touching said dead man's penis, but there are zero boobs, nipples. What is this all about? I think they overcorrected with the downplaying the sexism.
2: That's true. You're probably right on that. I think that's interesting. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but uh, when you guys watched the movie, did you see the scooter chase scene uh, after the morgue scene? Or was that part edited out?
0: No, I saw that. Yeah.
2: You saw it? Yeah, because the version I watched this week had the scooter scene edited out, and I thought that was interesting because I know there was an uproar after the movie came out about that scene because you have Alexandra Daddario running through the park, and she's got one of the bad guys running at her, and she ends up flashing him, but she flashes him, and it's just her wearing a bra. And then she ends up clocking the guy and taking him out, whatever, everything like that. Which I thought was funny, but that was actually taken out of the movie post release in edited releases because of the sexism related to it, and people thought that it was unnecessary and sexist. Like you said, Frank, no boobs, only penises that we saw in the movie. (laughs) You know, like it'd be one thing if she was flashing somebody and she was completely naked, that would be kind of ridiculous. But her flashing somebody and having a bra and just kind of like distracting the guy just enough so that she could clock him with the the lifeguard device there to knock him out—I thought that was interesting that scene was taken out after the fact because of uh, blowback from the public.
0: Thank you for pointing that out, Pat. That is a perfect scene where we could have had nudity and it would have also made sense for the plot. And at its heart, I think this movie shares some DNA with classic eighties teen comedies. So to not have any boobs, I can't believe Roadhouse had more boobs in this movie. <laughs>
2: this movie was definitely primed for more cleavage for sure. And you definitely had uh, women in tight swimsuits, things like that. But you're right. We didn't have that moment where you would think uh, like there's a scene where I think CJ walks in and the guys in the shower naked and she's like, it's a co-ed shower. You should wear trunks when you're in here. You know what I mean? Versus like, I think if this was a movie that was filmed in the 80s, you probably would have had a scene where a guy walked in and there were three or four naked women showering. You know what I mean? So it's interesting how society has changed over the years. Can we at least gotten side boob? (laughs)
0: Andrew, I know that from previous discussions, you don't seem to be a big proponent of nudity. What did you think of the lack of female nudity in this? If you're going to show
1: things, I think it should have more of a concrete purpose. I know the discussion you're referencing, and it's not that I'm anti. (laughs) I'm not anti. It's just I was shocked that there was so much... In that movie, the one of the guys, I was just shocked at how much there was. You know, with the flashing scene that was removed, they could have maybe done it to where, like, she opened her top, but they did it from the back so you don't see anything. Because then it just leaves the illusion we can imagine, oh, is she wearing a bra, is she not? And I know that completely defeats the purpose for you, Frank. It would have been better with them, but I would rather have Zero. Well, no, let me... Th- In terms of story, I would rather have zero than forcing a bunch in there. But at the same time, like, because then it's just pointless, pointless boobs. As much as I like them, it's like the swearing, because now it's just you're trying to get an R rating. I get it. You know, you're a cool guy. I just don't like it when I feel like the movie's trying too hard for something like that.
0: It's not that I just need to see breasts. It's that for a movie that doesn't seem to take itself very seriously and is just goofy, stupid fun, it feels like they are using female nudity as a sacred cow. And it's like, oh, this is the line. We can do this other stuff, but we're not going to cross this line because we're going to be that movie that champions equality among the sexes when it's based on a franchise as anti-that, as Pat explained, as Baywatch. (laughs) So it just seemed a little weird that They would hold anything back, maybe in
2: the sequel, fellas, maybe the sequel.
0: (laughs) Pat, any final thoughts on this movie?
2: I enjoy this one for a bad movie night for sure. Having rewatched it, you know, this week after a few years of not watching it, it's definitely more ridiculous than I remember it being. I think I downgraded it a few steps from my memories of it watching it a few years ago.
1: Yeah, it's good for a bad movie night, I think. It's a good one for having some drinks with the boys take a drink every time the rock gives zach efron a nickname you can take a drink every time zach's being a douche which is most of the movie or being useless which is most of the movie (laughs) (laughs) you can definitely make a drinking game out of it i do think that that's what a movie like this is good for
0: they actually gave some depth to the characters especially zach efron's character they gave him an arc which i was amazed at in this sort of film They actually included some expository scenes, so you got a better idea of what the heck's going on. It tricked me a little bit, and I like that. Now our final film of the night, which is Die Hard 2, Die Harder from 1990. This was my pick. So we got John McClane, played by Bruce Willis. In the first movie, he was in uh, Nakatomi Plaza, stuck in a building, fighting terrorists, crawling through ducks. Uh, running on glass barefoot and now in this movie he's at dulles airport christmas time there to pick up his wife and guess what more terrorists show up (laughs) (laughs) and then they pretty much take the airport hostage because there's uh some south american general he's been captured deep into drugs and they want to free him From what I could tell, with what little they give us, I guess the reason why these terrorists who end up being um, American special forces guys, black ops guys, led by William Sadler, the reason why they want to free this general is that he's anti-communist. Did you guys pick up on that? (laughs) Uh, Vaguely. Yeah, I mean, I think it's said like maybe twice. It's hard to understand why they want to free this guy so badly once he gets there. But right off the bat, let me start with what's super ridiculous, which is if their point is that they want to fight communism and they want to support this general because even though he's a drug-dealing bastard, he is anti-communist, well, guess what? Just wait a year later, 1991... The USSR will dissolve anyway, and you don't need to do this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Pat, what are
0: some ridiculous things in this?
2: Yeah, I think I mentioned earlier I love the Die Hard franchise. I enjoy all of the movies. I think uh, for Die Hard 2, uh, between the first three films of the, in the series, you know, Die Hard, Die Hard 2, and Die Hard with a Vengeance, I think it's the weakest film. But I don't necessarily think that makes it bad, per se, you know, it's got the traditional John McClane just being a badass, doing his thing. Everybody else being completely inept around him. In this movie, he has a lot more help than he does in the original film. Uh, or he has the potential for more help. Yet, it seems like everybody's kind of counterintuitive and working against his interests. McClane's interest, which is to kill the terrorists and save his wife. So I think that's one of the more ridiculous things for me, at least, is that You just can't not get good help. Nobody believes him. Nobody trusts him. Nobody takes him seriously.
0: What do you think, Andrew? What's ridiculous in this movie? Kind of everything. (laughs) It's a classic
1: action sequel where you take the idea of the first one, which is John McClane fights terrorists, and you give it everything's bigger. So instead of an L.A. building, he's now in a D.C. airport. You see characters from the first one, although it's kind of like, you know, what are the odds they're on a plane together? It's very much just classic sequel where everything's dialed up. You can't do a sequel that the stakes aren't as high as the first one, and they definitely went for bigger in this one.
0: An inherent ridiculous aspect to it that isn't the movie's fault but happens to every movie eventually are just the number of anachronisms the way the airport's portrayed and flying. There's a scene where John McClane's wife is talking to another passenger and the passenger takes out a stun gun. And I was watching that thinking, I can't imagine now that old lady being able to get on to a plane with a stun gun. Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean,
1: McClane had a gun in the first one on his flight.
0: How much of the plot do you think would have been made moot if they just had smartphones (laughs) and twitter and, and and facebook because part of the plot involves them being unable to communicate with the airplanes and let them know that terrorists have taken over if they just had facebook and other things i feel like it'd be pretty easy to disseminate that information
1: yeah you know like with these older action movies smartphone tech and how interconnected we always are really does render a lot of these things if they had that technology it wouldn't be such a big deal it'll just be like lol terrorists in the airport and then you know it's tweeted and everyone picks up on it it is interesting to think of it from that way where you have to just remember this is the 90s um, the start of the 90s back when you could still
0: bring weapons to the airport (laughs) (laughs) good times good times.
2: Yeah, in a modern-day setting, you know, with cell phones and the technologies that we have today, things could be different. But at the same time, in this film, you know, you have, before they lose communication with the planes, they send some of the planes away to other airports, but they leave a number of planes circling above Dulles Airport. And when it becomes apparent that they're not going to get communication back, they find this way to communicate with the planes via the outer marker. And at that point in time, you would think that, like, maybe we should tell these planes to go to other airports. <laughs> maybe we should have them going to Reagan National, or which wouldn't have been Reagan National yet, but you're on the East Coast where there's, there are airports within 50, 60 miles in any direction where you could send these planes to land, and you still have them circling above the airport till the end <laughs> of the movie.
0: Mentioning some interesting cameos in this, Andrew, were there any cameos that surprised you? Cameos, not that I can think of, but I was really happy
1: to see a couple of Deep Space Nine actors in this movie.
0: <laughs> I can only think of one DS9 actor, Colm Meany. Who is the other one?
1: The bad guy, uh, William Sadler, was Sloan in Deep Space Nine from Section 31.
0: Right, that's right.
2: <laughs> one of the cameos that I liked is Robert Patrick. He's one of the quote unquote painters who's a terrorist in disguise waiting to assault the SWAT team. He's got a very small cameo. But I mean, at that point in time, he'd already been the T one thousand in the Terminator two movie. Oh, that's right. Well, this is right before T two. No, I thought T two came out in like eighty six, right?
0: No, T two was like that was like ninety one, ninety two. Yeah, another terrorist, John Leguizamo, makes a couple appearances.
1: (laughs) Oh my, Luigi Mario himself.
0: There are a lot of fun action sequences in this. If we're talking about ridiculous moments, I'd like to point out a moment where John McClain is in the plane that landed, that was carrying our general, and the bad guys have McClain holed up in the cockpit and they shoot at him and then they throw a bunch of grenades. What is the timer on those grenades? Like 20, 25
2: seconds? (laughs) It's the longest fuse ever. They throw an absurd number of grenades at him as well. (laughs) What, 15 or 20 grenades landing in the cockpit while he's sitting in there trying to figure out how he's going to get out?
0: Well, in their defense, McLean should have died like five different times already, so I think they just wanted to be really sure.
2: Then the fact that they watch him escape from that, and then they're just like, well, whatever, he lives for now. If he survived that, I'd be like, what the heck? I'm going to go after him and put a bullet between his eyes.
0: (laughs) A detail about this that I like, that I think a lot of movies now, action movies, don't do enough of, is this thing where McClane shows multiple times that he's still just a guy. He grimaces a lot when he gets hit or shot. He looks pained. And that human aspect of him, where he just seems like a working cop, really helped sell the character for me and keep me invested in him. Andrew, if you were to lob some criticisms at this movie, what would you say?
1: I would probably just say it's too sequel It tries too hard, I think, to capture the magic of the original instead of trying to do more of its own thing where I think Die Hard with a Vengeance succeeded. And even Live Free or Die Hard, I mean, I haven't seen the fifth one, but the other two... Movies were more of McLean. Yes, he's saving the day on a bigger scale, but it's not him kind of trapped in a spot. There were just moments in the movie where I just, it wasn't as tense as the first one. They did it during Christmas again, trying to do everything that the first one already did. But I will always keep the icicle in the eye.
2: Yeah, I forgot about that. That's awesome. And I I would say I agree with you on that, Andrew. Is that the third one? They do such a good job with it. It's a standalone movie, but it also has connections to the first film as well that are pretty important. Instead of him being trapped in one place, he's able to travel and move about. He's still got to defeat the terrorists and kill the bad guys in order to win. Whereas the second film is really just a carbon copy of the original in a lot of ways. Absolutely. There's not enough originality to it, I would agree.
0: Now, surprisingly, Die Hard 2 is just over two hours long. There were parts of it that felt a little unnecessary. If I were to make a suggestion and go back in time and edit this movie a bit, without giving it away, do you guys remember, when you first saw this, did you see the end of the second act twist? The big reveal that makes the movie go on another half hour? You mean, like, did we see it coming, or...? Yeah.
1: It's been a long time since I saw this movie for the first time. I don't want to say that I would have, I don't think I would have seen it coming, but I don't think I would have been too, too stunned, I think.
2: I don't remember seeing it coming. And once again, I've seen this movie so many times over the years that it's hard to go back. But I do find it kind of surprising too, because you think about the role these characters all play in the film, and it's a stretcher far-fetched to believe that, You'll have this many individuals in a particular group that all make the same decision collectively as a group and decide that's a great idea and that's what they want to do.
0: I had never seen this movie all the way through before, so I was including it in this discussion without being entirely sure it was going to come out all right. (laughs) I did see the twist coming. Not that it made it bad, necessarily, but I feel like the bulk of the movie, the best parts of it, are when they're at the airport and it's about the planes. And then once it starts to move away from the airport, that's where it just gets a little convoluted and one too many twists. And I wish they had just kept it to the dilemma of, okay, these terrorists have full control of the airport and we've got a ticking clock because some of these planes need to land and I think it would have been a stronger, more focused film if they just stuck
2: with that. Without the twist at the end of the second act. Yeah, and
0: introducing a secondary antagonist. Because William Sadler, he is just a joy. He's one of the best character actors of that generation. But this is the same guy that played Death in Bill and Ted. (laughs) He did. (laughs) He can play comedy... I've seen him play a good-hearted dad in a few things. But he is just a stone-cold badass in this movie, so much so that they give him a naked Tai Chi scene. He should be hanging out with Dalton at the Roadhouse. And he's ripped. Kudos to William Sadler. As we
2: wrap it up, Pat. If you're looking for a fun action movie, put this on the must-watch list. Like I said, it's a great franchise. They've done a great job with all the films Back to what you said about William Sadler being in that movie and being excellent. There's a scene at the beginning when a reporter approaches him because he is a famous currentologist. He asks him for a word and he says, I'll give you two screwing you. <laughs> Definitely kicks that movie off on the right note. So you kind of know what to expect.
1: Andrew, your final word. I guess the main thing I would say with Die Hard 2 is if you're a huge fan of the first one, this is worth a watch if you want more of action along the same lines. It's another drinking night with the guys. All of these movies are perfect for beers with your friends and just watching them and having a good laugh. If you watch movies with subtitles, which I don't like to do, but you can turn the subtitles on so you guys can talk and scream and cackle at these movies and still read everything, I think these are best enjoyed with friends.
0: Even though it is an action moving through and through, Die Hard 2 does a good job of always keeping the stakes in place. There's one moment where William Sadler's colonel blows up a plane just to prove that he's serious. And McClane practically cries out on the runway when he sees the burning wreckage of that plane. It's great to show that there are stakes in all this and that he's not always going to win. When people die, he does cry. So he's not entirely bulletproof of mind or spirit. That's always nice for me. I like that. As we move on to our final segment, which is TLDL, too long, didn't listen. Guys, I'm going to ask you questions. And I would like very short answers, as succinctly as possible. Pat, let's start with you. Which of these movies is most ridiculous? Roadhouse. Andrew, which of these is the best looking movie? Roadhouse. (laughs) Pat, which of these is the best date movie? Die Hard 2. Andrew, who's the better hero? Dalton, McLean, or Buchanan? Damn, I'd have to go with McLean. Pat, which of these would you say is the best to watch in 30 minute chunks? Let's say somebody just has a little extra time here and there and they're going to watch a movie in segments. Which of these would be best for that? Baywatch. Andrew. If someone decided that we really have some good recommendations here and they're going to marathon all three of these in one night, what order would you put them in? The order I would watch them would be Baywatch, Die
1: Hard 2, Roadhouse.
0: Now, for this final question, I'm going to ask both of you guys, and this one, please do explain a little bit. Which of these do you think most benefits from being ridiculous?
2: I think Baywatch does, because it comes from the story franchise of the TV show. So the fact that they just kind of own that from the get-go, when they announced that movie, when it came out, it was pretty well known that that was what you were expecting, and then they got a big name like The Rock to come in and play that lead character, of Mitch Buchanan, complimented by Zac Efron. I thought they did a great job with the casting for that film.
1: It comes down between Baywatch and Roadhouse for me. Just to be different, I will say Roadhouse. Because Roadhouse takes itself seriously. It is an 80s barroom homage to lawman westerns. It never overtly tells you, hey, this isn't meant to be taken too seriously. It gives you very subtle cues. And I think that's the charm of Roadhouse, is that it's ridiculous, but it doesn't ever truly acknowledge it.
0: I'm going to join in and say Baywatch benefits from being ridiculous the most, if only because without all the ridiculous aspects to the plot, it would just be lifeguards on a beach. The other two movies can definitely work, let's say taking it from 90% ridiculous down to 5 or 10. But Baywatch, if you take away most of the ridiculousness, you take away pretty much the whole story. Because then it just becomes a coming-of-age movie where Zac Efron goes to be a lifeguard for the summer, and he's rediscovering himself, and The Rock is his mentor. I mean, that's really what the movie would turn into if they couldn't investigate murders and drugs. (laughs) True. Well, guys, any final, final words? I would say just because people call a movie ridiculous
1: doesn't mean it's bad. Don't let over-the-top and ridiculous scare you from experiences.